Hi everyone, you're listening to Guts and Girl Bits. I'm Alison Mitchell, a practicing naturopath, and I hope to share with you all sorts of information about women's health and digestive health to educate and empower you to make informed choices about your own health. Please remember that all information is general and does not replace consulting with a healthcare practitioner. So today I'm joined with Brooke Heil, who's a women's health physio in northwestern Sydney, and she has a special interest in the pelvis and all dysfunctions that can surround this area. She's worked in the maternity unit at Fairfield Hospital, as well as in private practice, and has been guided by some of the best women's health physios in Sydney, including Taryn Hallam and Jolene Murdoch. Brooke aims to empower women to feel confident in their bodies, to talk about the issues affecting them and encourage all women to seek help when needed to allow them to reach their goals. So today we're going to be talking about all the ways that physiotherapy can be beneficial for women who are about to conceive, who are pregnant and also when they're new mums. So let's just talk a little bit to start with about some of the changes that actually occur during our body while we're while we're pregnant. Yeah, so during pregnancy, everything changes basically from the moment of fertilization onwards. Um, just an aside, relaxin as a hormone is not the cause of everything relaxing and loosening off. There's no proof for that. Um, whatever hormone it is, whether it's progesterone, whether it's estrogen, something in the body causes it to start to relax and loosen off in preparation for labor. So it's a loosening all of the ligaments around the pelvis causing everything to prepare for birth. Simba! We're here uh, with, with Brooke's doggies, so you can probably hear them playing in the background. <laughs> Simba was just enjoying himself a little bit too much. <laughs> okay, so we've got the um, changes that are occurring that are causing everything to relax, but we know that it's not actually relaxing. Not relaxing. It's something else that we don't really fully understand. Mm-hmm. So we've got our pelvis changes. Mm-hmm. And we've got other areas that are changing as well. So um, our ribs and our torso is changing a little bit too because our ribs essentially have to lift up and out to yes. accommodate the growing baby and our organs are all shifting around and um, playing Tetris with themselves yes. essentially. So yes. we've got all our intestines squished against our diaphragm and our diaphragm flattened out as well. Often people get quite short in breath as well when they're pregnant too, don't they? Yeah. And, and refluxy. Very refluxy. Yes, yes. And that can also go ways to explain why some women get constipated, but that's usually more the tr- more the cause for constipation later on. Yes. Whereas if you've got constipation earlier on, then that's not, not likely to be the pressure. No, not likely to be everything moving because things don't have to move too much earlier on. Mm. Um, it can be a hormonal thing, though, because everything slows down because of the hormones during pregnancy. Mm. So our bowel isn't actually beating and moving things through as quickly as it was mm. pre-pregnancy. Um, so that could be a factor early on or it could be a dietary factor as well. Yes, quite likely when women do get some morning sickness, they don't want to eat anything. Yes, so it can impact that motility also. Yeah, so if you don't have any fibre there to bulk up your poos, then, yeah, there's not much to come out. No, no. It's it's interesting the way that everything does slow down. I think that's also our body's way of actually trying to retain and, like, absorb all the nutrients that it can. Yeah. So just making it sort of get more bang for your buck. Yes, yes, exactly. 
Yeah. And I, I also like to talk about some of the other changes that are occur in our body when we're pregnant as well, which I just find absolutely fascinating. For instance, our heart changes in size to accommodate all the extra blood volume for our baby and our own fluids as well. We have a, a dramatically um, big increase in our um, blood volume to accommodate for everything and um, we've also got all these extra cells that we're growing um, we have to grow a whole new baby a whole new life and we have to grow everything about it the muscles the nerves the skin the glands all the organs its brain and all of those sorts of things and then we have to also build a placenta and we have to build um, that thickened amniotic lining as well for that cushioning for the baby to occur too and our our kidneys also increase in size, which will um, mean that we have that greater um, risk of reflux at the same time, um, urinary reflux and increased chance of urinary tract infections because um, there is that um, dilation that occurs, um, which means that you're more likely to get asymptomatic or symptomless urinary tract infections, which is one of the reasons why um, you do have to do wee tests so often when you go and get your checkups done. <laughs> Yes, it's just absolutely amazing. And so considering that we have to grow all those extra cells, that's one of the reasons why it's really important to look after yourselves nutritionally as well and make sure that you're getting in all those building blocks and that as much as possible you're eating well. It's not always the easiest thing to do. No, not at all. <laughs> so as a women's health physio, what are, the, what are some of the things that women will come and see you for when they're pregnant? Yeah, so there's lots of different conditions that they can present with. Usually throughout their pregnancy, they can be coming in for pain around their pelvis. So whether it's around their sacroiliac joints, whether it's around their lower back or whether it's around their pubic symphysis, so right at the front of the pelvis, a lot of it is because of those hormonal changes causing things to loosen off a little bit, meaning that those muscles are sensing that there's a little bit of a change happening so they tighten up and try and compress and support so a lot of the time women get told that everything is unstable usually it's that everything's actually quite compressed because those muscles are working so so hard to compress and hold everything together where the ligaments used to be and so a lot of the pain that they can get is actually compression rather than unstable or laxity or looseness of things um, so working on reducing some of that tension and optimising their movement patterns, optimising the function of those muscles can be really helpful. Mm, okay. And so is it something that women can actually work on before they're pregnant to make sure that everything is strong but also not too tight? Yes. So ideally, if women, the more women are active and fit leading up to their pregnancy, the more likely they are to get pregnant in the beginning. Um, but the more pain-free their pregnancy is likely to be because their body's nice and strong. They're able to cope with the demands, which pregnancy is quite high demand on mm. the body. Um, so they're able to cope with the demands of the pregnancy and tend to have fewer injuries so a lot of the women that I treat working in a gym setting are very fit very active so they don't usually come in with too many aches or pains there might be the occasional hip pain or the occasional back pain um, compared to other women who aren't exercising they usually tend to have more aches and pains so the more you can exercise before you're planning on getting pregnant and exercising during pregnancy if it's safe for you to do so is absolutely ideal fair enough yeah and so is that something that you're fairly experienced in guiding people with as well yes yeah. definitely <laughs> definitely I love getting women exercising a lot of the time I actually get to do exercise classes with women and work out strategies for them mm. and so that's really I love that part of my job I know I came and saw you for my own back pain yes <laughs> when yes. I was pregnant with Lara 
And so that was really good to be able to identify some of those things that is contributing towards it as well. And, and also looking at things that we can do in our, in, in my life as well. Like, um, you taught me how to basically bend over a, a little bit better. That would, yes. and, and that was actually really good after Lara was born too, because, um, at that point I was getting a lot of back pain and so it was just this, this simple thing about how to change, bend over to change a nappy and it made such a big difference as yeah, well, yeah. as well as everything else. That yeah, happened. but simple things like yeah. that. Women who are pregnant and early postnatal, we don't need all the hard stuff. Ideally, the simple things that you can change easily yeah. and the way that I taught you how to bend, that actually helps to strengthen your muscles as well. So it's kind of a double bang for you, but kind of an exercise, which is awesome. Yes. Um, <laughs> but the more strategies like that that we can give women, the better because yeah. ideally if we can get them doing those simple things at home that can help help them manage without always having to come in for physio or go and see the car or go and you know get extra help elsewhere the more they can do for themselves the more empowered they feel and the better everything can run for them yeah yeah it's empowering that's right yeah okay so another one that women commonly have issues with is pubic symphysis pain Mm -hmm. yeah so what's actually going on with that Yeah, so usually when women are getting pubic symphysis pain, that's pain right at the very front of the pelvis. So sort of what some women term the vagina bone. I've had women come (laughs) in and say that that's where they're getting their pain. But usually it's a pinpoint tenderness right at the front of the pelvis as well as groin pain. So right through sort of the undie line can extend down into the inner thighs as well. And so the pubic symphysis is a little piece of cartilage that sits in between the two pelvic bones. So it, like all of the ligaments in the body, can start to soften throughout pregnancy. So if you were to press that piece of tissue in a pregnant woman, it's very soft. You can almost press all the way into it. So like we were talking about before, the body starts to notice that that's happening and it doesn't want everything to open up and soften completely. So those muscles, particularly your inner thigh muscles and your side bending oblique muscles, they sort of cross directly over the pubic symphysis and they'll notice things are starting to loosen off. They'll then tighten up and they can actually compress the pubic symphysis, causing pubic symphysis pain. Um, so a lot of the time every case is different and unique but a lot of the time it can be either working on releasing through those muscles or strengthening those muscles it might be that they're weak and causing a tightness so we actually need to turn those muscles back on and that releases the tension over the pubic symphysis or they might be really really overworked that woman might be squeezing her inner thighs quite significantly um, or you know twisting and turning quite a lot causing tightening through her side bending muscles and that might be causing the compression through there so just working out those sorts of things and strategies to help those women to move more pain free and to change that compression that's happening at the pubic symphysis are really important mm. it goes to show that there's so many interconnecting muscles that can cause those sorts of pains like yes. for instance like your adductor muscles your inner thigh muscles you wouldn't often think about that being a, a factor no no but it can be okay and what about um I, I know for instance like I was really curious about it and I know a lot of other women are as well like how to prevent abdominal separation like is it something you can prevent and what can you do about it <laughs> I would love to say that we can absolutely prevent it but it is a very natural part of pregnancy so as the baby is growing obviously it needs more space through the tummy so that piece of tissue down the center of the abdominal wall the linear alba that has to stretch a little bit So up to two centimetres, two or three centimetres is quite normal in most women. Some women even prior to having babies have up to two centimetres of separation. I've got about 1.2 and I've not had kids just yet. Um, So zero is not normal. 
but having separation to some degree is normal. Um, so obviously we want to try and minimize it as much as possible, but we don't really know the cause of it. So we don't know whether doing crunches is bad for abdominal separation. We don't know whether lifting weights is bad. We don't actually know if doing nothing is worse than doing more. Mm. So there's not as much research as we would like on abdominal separation as it stands at the moment. Um, the biggest things that I'm usually looking for with women is making sure that where all their abdominal muscles attached to, so their pelvis and their thoracic spine, are moving really well. If that's moving well, there's less tension through the abdominal wall. And if women know how to activate through their lower abdominal muscles and they can do things without any of that bulging or doming through their tummy, then usually that's a pretty good place to be in. Mm. Um, but usually I find that women who are quite active tend to recover their abdominal muscles better. Mm -hmm. So avoiding exercise is not the answer to avoiding abdominal separation at all. Okay. So the information that is out there about saying, you know, don't do crunches, don't do planks, that's of thing you're saying that they, that's not that not a one-size-fit-all <laughs> approach so some women definitely shouldn't do crunches they might as soon as they start to sit up they get a huge bulging through their tummy and to me not to everyone but to me that shows that they're not controlling their abdominal mm. wall very well so those women I would say don't do it mm. but other women can do crunches up to you know 30 weeks and they still aren't bulging they're not doming there's no change through their abdominal wall it stays quite consistent mm. and for those women I don't see why they can't if they feel comfortable and if they want to do a crunch I can't imagine being you know heavily pregnant and wanting to crunch <laughs> but if someone if that's their goal or they want to still do planks and they're still controlling it I'm okay with that okay cool yeah sometimes um, women do believe that they shouldn't do crunches they shouldn't do those sorts of things more so for the sake of the baby but previ previously when that's been a general recommendation that's actually more for your other health isn't it yes yeah yep. not so much because you're going to crunch the baby no no <laughs> i mean when we think about it so many women are sitting up out of bed and that's a crunch yeah. so if they're able to do that and that's comfortable and it's not causing them any issues and they're still not doming with that then they can do crunches they're mm -hmm. already doing one every morning when they get out of bed hmm. can you explain a bit about what doming is like how you can actually see that or test for yourself yeah so the way that I assess in the clinic is having women laying on their back with their knees bent up and then I place my fingers just above their belly button and get them to do a little bit of a crunch up and so what they can often see or what we'll feel is that there's a bit of a ridge so kind of like a bulge at the center of the abdominal wall it can be very small or it can be quite large um, and so that's what we term doming and that's how we would assess how much separation there is of that piece of tissue, the linear alba. Mm -hmm. Other times some women might notice that it actually cones in. So it kind of, rather than going outwards, it goes inwards. That's usually postnatally though, not during pregnancy. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And that's where there's not as much contents yes. in your abdomen to actually push it out as well. Yes. <laughs> yes. Okay. So I just wanted to talk a little bit more about backache because we talked a little bit about that before as well, but just some other things that can be quite helpful to, to basically make sure that you're reducing your risk of it happening is to make sure that you're eating really nutritious food, nutrient-dense foods, but one of, some of the minerals that are the most important for preventing backache is magnesium mm -hmm. and calcium. And magnesium and calcium work hand-in-hand -hand together to help with relaxing and contracting the muscles. And if um, you're actually low in calcium, and which can occur really commonly during pregnancy because we do have such an increased need for it, then 
that can mean that you're more likely to experience back pain and also cramping as well. So we require about um, 1,000 to 2,000 milligrams of calcium a day while we're pregnant and uh, just depends on the, on the woman. And it's really important to actually get that because calcium is so vital for laying down the bones of baby and the teeth health. And it's also really important for um, preventing preeclampsia mm-hmm. uh, or hypertension. Uh, preeclampsia is a little bit different because um, from hypertension, just while we're on that topic, because preeclampsia is actually much more of an inflammatory condition and there's a lot of other factors but just generally with um, hypertension calcium and magnesium is important in preventing that and if you're tending to get a lot of um, foot cramps and leg cramps and even things like restless legs then that can often be a sign that you need a little bit more calcium and magnesium potentially even iron that needs to be checked too and calcium um, if you and magnesium if you're low in it then it can also mean that you're more likely to experience a more painful or drawn out labor because those minerals are really important for the contraction and relaxation of the of the uterus itself and the, and the smooth muscles so that's really important too so you can get calcium from lots of different food sources dairy is probably the most well-known source of it but some people find that they don't tolerate dairy well or they don't they don't want to have dairy so i suggest getting a dairy in through tahini or from unheld sesame seeds because that has a really high content of calcium in that and then leafy green vegetables are a really good source of calcium and magnesium also things like nuts and seeds and um, chickpeas are really good for those as well and seaweed is really nutrient dense and especially in calcium and iodine so if you can get in some leafy greens and nuts and seeds and legumes and seaweed then you're going a long way to actually getting in enough of that but I often do recommend that people take a calcium supplement from this um, 20 weeks onwards um, and then as they go into their third trimester adding in a bit more magnesium to help with just relaxing everything in there too and that can sometimes help with just you know that os opening um, leading up to birth if you don't have enough um, magnesium then you're more likely to get um, issues with dilation too so um, that's something that you can talk to a practitioner about but just certainly boosting those calcium and magnesium rich foods goes a long way to help with that too so that's a little bit about nutrition for backache Mm -hmm. Um, the other thing I guess is making sure that you're well rested because if you're not getting enough rest that's going to make a big issue too and it's like what you said as well with the if your muscles are fatigued then they'll overcompensate yes and I know that makes a big difference for me (laughs) yes definitely the biggest I mean lack of sleep makes everything worse you Mm. can you know wake up feeling fabulous but if you've had a bad sleep and you start to fatigue towards the end of the day you're more likely to get aches and pains Mm. and your muscles are going to get more tired more quickly so trying to get good quality sleep sleep and find those positions that are comfortable is very important Mm. um I have a lot of women who end up kicking hubby out of the bed towards (laughs) the end of their pregnancy just because they've got so many pillows around them they've got this big pillow fort so they've got enough underneath their neck they might be cuddling a pillow they might have a pillow underneath belly they might have one between their knees between their ankles um so finding those positions and if you need help finding positions find a women herself physio who might be able to assist in that Mm. um but definitely positioning for sleep is very important during pregnancy yes yes I that made such a big difference for me once I actually got a proper pillow yes. but there's no, there's so many options out there for pillows and so it's all about you know finding what works for you isn't it yeah yeah 
Okay. So let's just talk a little bit about the pelvis alignment. So mm -hmm. making sure that basically all the internal muscles of the pelvis are relaxed mm -hmm. um, in, in preparation to labour. Yes, definitely. So that is actually a big thing that I work with in terms of pelvic floor muscles. Um, one of the things that we've slowly come to realise over time is that the position of your pelvic floor isn't just reliant on your pelvic floor. Um, everything externally can impact what's happening around the pelvis also. So those muscles that we were talking about around the thorax, around the pelvis, sometimes elsewhere around the neck or around your knee or around your foot or hip, um, <laughs> that can all impact the position of your pelvis and your pelvic floor muscles. So if there's lots of tight pull lines through, say, your ribs, then it might impact the position of your pelvis. So our uh, body's position wants to be facing forwards at all times. So if you've got really tight ribs or tight muscles through your side on the right-hand side and that twists you towards the right, your whole body doesn't want to be twisted that way. So your neck's going to turn a little bit to the left, your pelvis is going to turn a little bit to the left. Does that kind of make sense? It sure does. So, so that in turn will impact the position of your pelvic floor because your pelvis is turned a little bit, your neck's turned a little bit. So when we're assessing women in pregnancy, ideally I would love to see every woman at about 34 weeks pregnant so that we can assess these things. We can assess the position of their pelvic floor. If your pelvic floor is really tight on one side or tight on both sides, some women have a history of endometriosis, they've got pain with sex, pain with use of tampons, that makes it really tricky to labour and to push a baby out. So mm -hmm. if you're struggling with penetration in any form, then usually that means there's an overactivity there through those muscles. And that's really something we need to address prior to labour because otherwise that can result if those muscles stay really, really tight and contracted that might result in increased risk of tears or increased risk of intervention, women needing you know, epidurals and episiotomies and maybe even forceps or vacuum deliveries. And mm. so if they know that that's a risk, women might be more inclined to either seek treatment or they might decide that they're happy with where everything's at and they're happy to go ahead with having a vaginal birth with the way everything is and that's totally okay. Mm -hmm. But at least giving women that option of knowing where their body is in space what their pelvic floor is doing and can it relax enough and can they push effectively as well that's a big thing yeah. um so everything around the pelvis is really important to assess yeah for sure so what are some of the ways that you actually are assessing um, for the ability to push and the ability to relax yeah um so doing that we do a vaginal exam so an internal examination um, one of the first things that we do, we have a little stick, a measuring stick called a pop stick, um, and that measures the length of the pelvic floor. So we measure from the urethra, the urine tube, to the middle of the anus, and that length gives us an idea of how much stretch is in the pelvic floor. Um, so we assess women at rest. We want to know at rest where things are, but also then we get them to try and push like they're either about to push a baby out or like they're going to push out a bowel motion and we see how much does it stretch. In some women, it doesn't move at all. So we know that we might need to work on the pushing phase because they might not be pushing very well. Um, or in some women I've had, they've gone to push, but they've actually squeezed before they push. Mm. And so that's not something that we want to be happening during labor. We want everything to be relaxing and opening up, allowing for that birth canal and that pelvic floor to relax and open for baby's head and body to come down. 
Um, so we do that just externally, then we can go internally and feel onto the pelvic floor muscles and feel what happens to those when a woman tries to push. Do they relax and lengthen or do they contract? Mm, okay, yeah, that's something that would obviously be very counterintuitive to the act of getting a baby out as if you're squeezing before you're pushing and you're kind of like, in, out, in, out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, I mean, on crowning, a lot of women feel crowning and the first sensation is I don't like this I'm going to squeeze and tighten yeah so if we can help women prepare for that with perineal massage and with gentle stretching around the area Mm. then the likelihood of them contracting and tensing everything up and either prolonging their labor or increasing the need for intervention um, then hopefully we can help a lot more women have more intervention free or more perfect births for what they're looking for yeah that's good And so is there any other areas that you can suggest for women to help to reduce their risk of tearing? Things like birthing positions or um, any other activities leading up to it? Yeah, so I have a lot of women who do courses like calm birth or hypnobirth or, you know, those sorts of birthing courses that can really help. And a lot of those courses um, chat through birthing positions. So ideally we don't want women on their back if we can Mm. avoid it. Ideally, anything where the pressure is going down. So we want gravity to assist us as much as possible so that women don't have to push as much. Ideally, if they can do as minimal pushing as possible, then that would be great. So ideally, the positioning is going to really help that. So if we can have women either on all fours, if they want to be on their side, they're better positions to be in to allow gravity to assist baby coming down the birth canal, minimize the need for pushing, and that can really help women out throughout their labors as well. Um, One of the other things that can be quite helpful is making sure pelvic floor is nice and strong as well. Mm -hmm. So we were talking just before about making sure things aren't too tight. But we want to make sure we have a really well-functioning pelvic floor. So that means that it can relax and lengthen, but it can also squeeze nice and tight. So that is something that we assess at that checkup if women are going to come in for those sorts of things. Um, So we measure how strong their squeeze is. And if we need to get it stronger, we can work on those pelvic floor exercises, which will help in labor and can help in the recovery postnatally also. Mm. But then I guess that's where getting it checked is good because then if you are working on strengthening it, whereas too tight or, uh, yeah, tense, then that's not always that. Yes, (laughs) yes. Not every woman needs to do pelvic floor exercises. Some women just need to learn to relax. I have a lot of women who go, but I can't feel anything. And I go, okay, that's because it's too tight. It's not that it's weak and you need to keep going. Mm. Oh, it's so interesting. And are there other areas that you need to strengthen leading up to birth as well? Like, for instance, like, because like, I know birth, like, it's a marathon, yes. essentially. Yeah. So you kind of do need to train a little bit leading up to it, like, like squatting and things. Like, what, what do you suggest for that? Yeah. So, like we were talking about before, keeping fit and active throughout pregnancy is the biggest thing. Um, I've had a couple of women who've had births where they haven't been training at all, and then they've had a second or a third birth where they've been training throughout the entire thing, and they've said it's made such a big difference to their birthing experience so Mm. doing whether it's strength classes whether it's circuit training whether you know you're walking or running um if you can still do that whatever you can do to keep fit and active it's all going to help because birth is kind of like a marathon yeah um so the fitter that you are the more endurance you're going to have and the easier it's going to be on your body okay awesome 
right, so now that we're on the topic of birth itself, um, let's talk a little bit about some of the interventions that they might be suggested to women and, mm-hmm. and just so we know, women know what they're dealing with and the risks associated with it. Yeah, so one of the first interventions, if we're talking about a vaginal birth, that women will be offered is usually some form of pain relief. So epidural might be the first thing or it might be gas or morphine. Um, what we do know is that when a woman chooses one intervention, then we call it the intervention cascade. They're more likely to require more interventions down the track. So if a woman's been induced, so they need help with starting their labour, they're more likely to need an epidural because it speeds up the process of the contraction so much faster and it's synthetic in the body. It's not a natural way of labour beginning. So everything tends to happen a lot faster, a lot harder and is a lot more painful. Not always, but can be the case. Um, So that can be the case with induction, meaning more epidural. Epidural is the pain relief that most women know about. So it's an injection into the back and it means that basically everything is numb from the waist down, Um, which obviously, as we know, can mean that you don't know if you're pushing or if you're not pushing, you don't know what you're doing. Um, So that can mean that if you're not able to push, you're not sure what's happening around your pelvic floor, then you might need assistance in the form of an episiotomy, so a cut, and they usually go off to the side just to help open up the birth canal a little bit more. Um, Or it might be that you need help of forceps to help bring baby down. So forceps are kind of like tongs, I suppose, if we're going to liken them to anything. And what they do is they get inserted on either side of the vagina they go up into the birth canal, attach onto baby and help pull baby down the birth canal. So if baby's sitting up really, really high, then they have to use a deep forceps or if baby's sitting at the entrance but the woman is just too fatigued to push or the entrance just isn't allowing baby to come out, then they might need those forceps to help remove baby. Um, And forceps do come with risks. So if the forceps are inserted quite high up or even lower down, it can cause damage to the pelvic floor. Um, It can mean that women's pelvic floor muscles can be torn, can be quite damaged and can result in more tearing down the track. So when baby's head is coming through, usually because there hasn't been enough time for the, the vagina to stretch basically at the entrance because those forceps have just removed baby very, very quickly. Um, And the other one is vacuum, which is a little bit less intense than forceps. Um, So that's where there's like a suction cup attached to baby's head and helps to pull baby down the birth canal as well. Same sort of thing at the entrance to the vagina. It doesn't have time to stretch as optimally, so it can result in more risk of tearing. Mm. And do they often do it without a... um episiotomy oftentimes they do an episiotomy first okay yeah and the episiotomy in terms of its healing and its damage to any sort of muscles and tissues compared to tearing how would you compare those usually we prefer tearing over an episiotomy unless of course it's a large tear so most women will tear a little bit during vaginal birth anyway it's just how it happens unfortunately because a baby's head is quite large in relation to the vaginal entrance Um, but ideally a tear is a little bit more physiological so the body can repair it a little bit better than a cut having said that though if the woman is at risk of tearing all the way down through the anal sphincters and is at risk of either 
um, urine incontinence or faecal incontinence, then having an episiotomy is actually a better option because what the episiotomy does is it goes off to the side so it minimises the damage to the pelvic floor. Um, it still requires stitches just like a normal physiologic tear does, but if you can go off to the side rather than straight down the midline, we do prefer that. Mm. So there are pros, there are cons. It shouldn't just be a routine thing that everyone gets an episiotomy though. Yeah. I guess the thing with with that is that like you don't know if you're going to tear exactly you also don't know where you're going to tear either yeah more to what degree so that is a tricky situation yeah um, but I guess knowing the the ability of your pelvic floor to relax and to stretch beforehand does give you a bit of an insight into whether you are more likely to do that or not yeah and having a really experienced team whether you're going with midwifery care or you have an obstetrician they are very well trained so they should be able to choose when to do an episiotomy and when not to Mm, yeah fair enough um, so if someone does tear, I guess in, where naturopathy can be helpful is that there are some herbs that you can use to help with healing afterwards. So, for instance, with, with um, C-sections and tearing, they're actually very similar protocols that we tend to use. And so that's things like echinacea for helping with the immune system to mop up all of those extra cells that need to, to be um, mopped up. Um, things like gotcha cola, that's a lovely herb that helps with wound healing and tissue repair. And it's also a really good nervous system herb as well. And grapeseed extract can be helpful. So that one's also a really strong antioxidant. So it helps with the repair in that regard. And then nutrients like zinc and vitamin C are really important. And you also need to make sure you're getting enough protein uh, because you need protein to repair. Not too much protein, but not not enough protein uh, but zinc's a really good one to make sure that you do have enough of leading up to the birth to mean that if you do have a tear or you have something along those lines that you are more likely to heal at the same time and it's important for many other factors like um, healthy breastfeeding and, and all of the other hormonal processes that occur at the same time lovely so let's now talk about c-section <laughs> So if a woman has to have a C-section for whatever reason, then it's, it's obviously going to be um, a pretty big dint in her abdominal muscles and all of those things. Yes, it is quite major surgery and I don't think a lot of women realise that, that it is a major abdominal surgery and it does take time to recover. They are going through every single layer of abdominal muscle as well as through the uterus. So repairing the abdominal muscles does take time and it will take a fair bit of work to get those muscles to start working and functioning like they were pre-pregnancy again. Obviously it takes time for scar healing to take place so women won't be doing too much in terms of their abdominal wall for the first at least six weeks while everything heals, recovers and also they've got a new baby at home so that mm. takes you know precedence over repairing abdominal muscles. Um, but wound healing is the first point of call, so making sure that that scar is healing really well, keeping it clean, making sure that you're eating the right food so that that process can occur, but then also at about two weeks, starting some scar massage can be really helpful. So scar tissue is very, very dense, and your brain likes to connect to scar tissue more than it connects to muscles. So when we are starting the process of repairing the abdominal wall and strengthening the abdominal muscles, 
if we have very dense scar tissue, it's very hard for the abdominal muscles themselves to start to work. So getting that scar, massaging it, you know, side to side, up and down in circles every day from about two weeks onwards can help with desensitizing it, but also with minimizing scar tissue, which will then later on down the track help with abdominal muscle recovery. And then obviously working through our breathing and starting those gentle activation exercises. Do a lot of women continue to get pain in their C-section scar? Yeah, it is actually quite common. And I have women who've got pain up to 10 or 12 months postnatal. Um, a lot of the time it is because they haven't been told to start to gently massage the scar. They've been avoiding touching the scar. A lot of women find the process of a cesarean quite traumatic. Mm. And so going anywhere near that wound can be, you know, triggering for them. So working with someone who's, you know, really comfortable with cesarean scar recovery with helping women through that mental recovery as well can be quite helpful to minimize that pain but as soon as they start touching the scar it can start that healing process you know to start the ball rolling mm -hmm. and it can minimize that pain numbness is also very common up mm. until about a year yeah because it takes about 12 months for a nerve to actually regenerate and repair doesn't it yes I've actually still got a little bit of numbness after ash so for some people it can last for even longer yeah some women just get used to it and it becomes their new normal and yeah. they forget what the sensation ever was like prior to having the cesarean scar yeah. so every woman does take a little bit you know everyone's a little bit different in terms of their recovery yeah but maybe starting more massage might help with some of that numbness as well who yeah. knows yeah <laughs> <laughs> I know that some women are actually afraid that their C-section scar is going to tear when they're doing any exercise. What's the risk of that actually happening? It can happen, but it is a very, very, very low risk. Um, so that is one thing that you would get checked up at your six-week checkup, whether that's with obstetrician, whether that's with your GP or with your women's health physio, just to, in check, to check the integrity of the scar tissue. And your body will let you know if things aren't going the way that they're meant to go. So if, you know, you're... For instance, worst case scenario, your uterus was starting to come apart. You would be bleeding and you'd be feeling a lot of intense abdominal pain um, and feeling generally very unwell. So just having a little bit of discomfort around the abdomen when you're first starting to get back into exercise is quite normal. But if it is occurring, definitely get it checked out because mm -hmm. you want to you know, make sure you minimize the risk of anything going wrong. So it's more likely that sort of like sharp niggle twingy pain is not anything tearing. It's just things are shifting around and actually healing and re remodeling. Yeah. And it can be at those points of the scar potentially where there are those adhesions or those um, denser pieces of tissue that maybe it just needs some work to stop those pulling sensations and that sharp pain. Okay. Awesome. All right, so another thing that sometimes women do experience during pregnancy and sometimes even afterwards as well is varicose veins. Yes. So both on the legs but also vulval varicose veins as well. Is that something that they see you for? Yes, so that is quite common. It's not something that you should avoid seeing someone about and just putting up with. I have had some of my women who have said, oh, God, no, I didn't want you to see it because I thought it was so hideous. Mm. Um, but it is common and it's not terrible, but it is something that needs to be worked on because often what can happen is 
that women get those veins right around the vulva, so towards the entrance to the vagina, which causes a lot of pain, a lot of swelling, particularly towards the end of the day, they'll notice the vulva basically seems like it's blown up and doubled in size. And so it comes with a lot of pressure sensations as well and feeling like they're bruised around the vagina. Sex is then painful. Um, any form of penetration around the vagina or touching around the vagina or even the inner thighs and legs can be quite painful. Um, so the biggest thing for that, we don't really want to be poking and prodding women with varicose veins. It's not pleasant at all, but if we can work with some compression, so there are some really great compression garments out there like um, SRC support tights. Otherwise now I think the Modi Bodhi range have a little bit of compression also. Um, which are the period proof and the leak proof underwear. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you can just use a maternity pad with some really firm underwear to help with that lift and compression up to stop all of that swelling from pooling around the vulva throughout the day. Yeah. My recommendations for varicose veins would be to make sure that you're not constipated. And that you're going to the toilet really regularly because then if you're actually putting pressure when you're pooing, then that does increase your risk of varicose veins across the board in your legs or in the vulva as well. And things like elevating your feet when you're doing a poo, so getting a little footstool and raising so that you can raise your knees up above your hips when you're doing a poo does help to reduce how much you actually have to push. And then making sure you're drinking enough fluids, especially water, and that you're eating plenty of fibre. So if you do tend to have risk of that, then try and aim for about 28 grams of fibre a day and make that come predominantly from plant foods like vegetables and chickpeas and legumes and lentils and all of those other sorts of wonderful things. And then that will make your, your bowel motions nice and easy to, to pass and that will help with that too. Other things is making sure that you've got enough vitamin C and bioflavonoids in your diet. So eating those brightly coloured fruits and vegetables, which will help with the integrity of the vein health. And zinc is really important too. And then having all of your other um, nutrients that you need for those veins, which is in all of your yellows and your blues and your red fruits and vegetables, vegetables too. So having bit of berries every day even if it's frozen berries that's totally fine that can be good and I also recommend using witch hazel the witch hazel water extract that you can just get you can get that from the chemist or the health food shop and just saturate a cotton ball with it and apply that to the, the varicose veins there and it does have a little bit of an astringent effect so it reduces the pain that you've got there too and you can apply that to your legs if you need to if they are quite swollen and that's also pretty good for hemorrhoids because hemorrhoids are essentially a varicose vein, aren't they? Basically, yeah. yeah. Yep. So it's the same sort of principle. And then I also like to use what's called celloids or some, sometimes they can be called tissue salts, which are like a type of mineral supplement that's in a form that's really easily absorbed and it's really safe in pregnancy too. So we use certain forms of that for varicose veins and for hemorrhoids just to help to improve healing there as well. Okay, awesome. Now... We did a bit of a shout out for some questions. So let's have a look now and see what we've got. So have you got any questions come through? Yes. So we've got, what can we do during pregnancy to minimize the risk of tearing during labor? 
So that was something that we touched a little bit on earlier. Um, So making sure that we've been assessed, we know that you know how to push, that you can relax your pelvic floor, that your pelvic floor muscles are nice and strong. But the other thing that's really important that we didn't quite touch on earlier is perineal massage. Mm. Now, the perineum is this piece of tissue that's just underneath the vagina and it connects the vagina to the anus. And that's the piece of tissue that is most prone to tearing because it is a little bit firmer than the rest of the muscles around the pelvic floor. So if we imagine the entrance to the vagina is kind of like a closed circle, we want to insert a finger into the vagina, press down through the perineum, and we're sort of scooping backwards and forwards, almost like we're going from three to nine, side to side, and that can help to lengthen and stretch the perineal body, which will assist with labour and can minimise with the risk of tears, along with the other things like making sure pelvic floor is beautiful and stretchy and strong and those sorts of things. Okay, and it doesn't seem to really matter what you massage the perineum with because it's mostly the muscle that you're really trying to massage rather than the skin elasticity. Um, So you could just use anything that isn't a safe lubricant. Yeah, my favourite personally is a coconut oil just because most people tend to have it as a cooking thing. Yeah. Um, And it does stay nice and lubricating, whereas some of the lubricants that you can buy from the stores are water-based rather than oil-based and so they can dry off a little bit quicker. That's just a personal preference though. And coconut oil is quite good for its microbial support too, so it's nice and anti-candidal, (laughs) anti-thrush. Lovely. It's always helpful. Awesome. Um, Do we have any other questions? Yes. Um, So some of the other questions that we have are, once I've fallen pregnant, is it safe to continue training? Which, yes, the answer is absolutely yes. It's great to, if you've either never exercised before or, you know, you've been an avid exerciser throughout the rest of your life, it is definitely good to either start or continue exercise unless, of course, you've been advised by your healthcare provider um, that you shouldn't. So some of those conditions that might mean that you're at risk during exercise could be placenta previa, which is where the placenta is very low-lying. So any form of intensity could cause rupture of membranes. We don't want that. Um, otherwise, incompetent cervix, where the cervix isn't fully closed and is at risk of opening prematurely. We don't want women exercising or being too upright with that, um, as well as any issues with blood pressure or if women have experienced any bleeds when they've exercised before. They're some mm. of the main things that we would say definitely don't exercise with that. Yeah, okay. And what about types of exercise that they should or shouldn't do? I wouldn't necessarily say there's any exercise to avoid. Um, I know there's a big debate about CrossFit during pregnancy. Um, and if women are you know, happy doing CrossFit and they're comfortable and that's what they love doing, I would rather them do that than do absolutely nothing. So women just need to find a form of exercise that's good for them, ideally with some cardiovascular Um, work as well as some strengthening work Mm. and just making sure in terms of abdominal separation that we're not getting that bulging or doming that we were speaking about before and making sure ideally that we're not getting any leaking or any heaviness vaginally because that could put us at risk of having pelvic floor dysfunction down the track okay and what about exercise? I'm just asking my own question now. Exercises that you recommend for women just to help them prepare to be a mum and carry a baby around? Yeah, so upper body exercise is one of those things that not many people talk about. We all talk about our pelvic floor and our glutes and our core, which we've kind of spoken about throughout the podcast and we haven't really touched on upper body. Yeah. But when we think about the postnatal period, women are holding babies for long periods of time. They're picking up prams to put in and out of the car. They've got capsules that they 
they've got to carry. And then they've also got to be a mum and do life and, you know, work around the house and maybe return to work at the same time. So strengthening the upper body is extremely important. So if we're doing any form of weights through the upper body, whether that's as simple as bicep curls with your milk cartons at home, <laughs> or if you're doing upper body strengthening at the gym, then that's all fabulous and that will all help. Okay. And so it just sort of feeds back into everything that you've been saying as well and that like if you can keep your muscles strong but not too tight, yes. then things generally work out a lot better. Yes, exactly. Strong is good. Yay. <laughs> Did you get any other questions? Yes. So one for you. Um, this is more of a preconception question. Are there any supplements that can aid fertility? That is a good question and like, I think that would be a whole other podcast because like in terms of supplements to aid fertility, like if I'm going to say one thing, I'm going to say zinc because zinc is so important for like the health of all your reproductive aspects. But it is so much more complicated than that and there's so many different aspects that can actually inhibit your ability to conceive. I mean, quite often there is male factor infertility or subfertility factors going on as well that many people aren't aware of. Uh, but you need to make sure that like all of your hormonal balance is under, under control so you're, you're ovulating properly and that the egg is of good quality and that the DNA integrity is really good in that egg too in which case sometimes coenzyme q10 can be really good and then also making sure that you've got all those nutrients that you need for your thyroid and making sure that you've got everything that you need for a healthy uterus lining as well so there's many different factors that are involved and so you need to have a healthy uterus to implant into you need to have healthy vaginal discharge um, because that's often that's actually what the sperm eats on its way up to, wow. to implants and okay. so yeah and so they need to have all the nutrients in there to survive their little journey and then we also need to make sure that the sperm's working properly too and sometimes as well you you benefit from doing and actually if I had my way everyone would do this from doing a preconception care period of about four months because it takes about four months for the egg to develop we have a cycle that is essentially three cycles within one cycle of our egg developing and it takes 121 days for our sperm to to grow and establish and so the things that we're eating and doing and the supplements that we're taking is going to determine the health of all of those aspects in that period of time so if we can do a preconception care period that that would be good and i usually will de determine what's involved in that based on what's happening for the individual um, any hormone issues period issues any um environmental exposure stuff um and then making sure that the multi that you're taking is really really good quality um so i usually use a few different types like i like the natural best or my gen or tristos natal are my favorites but again i'll depend i'll determine which one i use on on the individual so that's actually a really long-winded answer to that question. You answered I, it perfectly. I guess, I guess the thing is that there is not one supplement to yes. boost fertility. It's a complicated thing. Yes, <laughs> Sorry. of course. And I think that we're going to have that sort of 
tricky answer for what can you do to increase your chance of falling pregnant. Um, <laughs> yeah, which is the, which is essentially Same sort of what thing. that was. Yeah. yeah, yeah. One of the big things that I am very big on, I say to all my women, is just making sure that you're exercising, that you're healthy, and knowing when you ovulate. Because yeah. what some women don't seem to know is that you can only fall pregnant around a certain time of the month, and that is around the time of ovulation. So mm. just knowing about that is important. Yes, there's so many myths out there around like ovulation time and that sort of thing too like people thinking oh you can actually ovulate more once in your cycle oh, I don't think you can like because like you just don't because in order to ovulate you need to have an LH surgeon and estrogen surgeon after you've ovulated that doesn't occur yeah so physiologically it's very just tricky. impossible yeah <laughs> fair enough yeah <laughs> all righty next question when would you recommend postnatal walks with bub i felt heaviness early on during walks um so that heaviness early on after um having a baby it can just be that everything internally is you know starting to rebuild itself it does take 52 days for your nerves of your pelvic floor and your muscles to start to heal and regenerate so that's why in my ideal world, I like to think to myself when I, you know, get pregnant, have a baby, I'll take a full six weeks off where I just lay on my back and do absolutely nothing and nice. my pelvic floor and nerves will lift and heal and be beautiful in an ideal world. <laughs> um, but we don't want women doing anything too strenuous too soon because we do have that damage to the organs or to the nerves and the pelvic floor muscles, not necessarily the organs themselves. Yep. Um, but if we are upright and we're either baby carrying while we're walking or we're carrying excess weight from the pregnancy, then that is going to put a fair amount of pressure down through the pelvic floor. So there isn't a one-size-fits-all approach for this either, but it is very individualised with just making sure that you're going for walks that feel comfortable. You can start in the first week if that's what you need to do. Some women, for their mental health, they just need to get out of the house and moving. And I would rather women do that than just sit at home if that makes them feel worse. Mm. So get moving if you need to. But if you do start to feel heaviness, then maybe on your next walk, make it a bit shorter. Or if you were baby carrying, maybe have baby in the pram. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to input my own question here. When you're walking with a pram as mm -hmm. a new mum, is it something that you really need to be conscious of about your position when you're doing that to exacerbate your pelvic floor muscles and your back pain? Yes and no. So if women are experiencing any pelvic floor dysfunction, then their positioning with their pram and holding their pram and walking can make a big difference. So some women need to lean forward a little bit more. Some women need to lean back a little bit more. Some women need to make their strides longer or shorter. It is very individualized, mm. um, but ideally trying to make sure that we're not swaying our back so pushing our pelvis forward and almost bulging our tummy out and making sure that we're not hunching through our shoulders would be the biggest things in terms of yeah. positioning um, but then finding a way of walking that feels comfortable for you yep okay cool yeah all righty next question we've got is tips for strengthening back and shoulder muscles to condition the body for breastfeeding so like we spoke about earlier basically any form of upper body strengthening is going to be great ideally strengthening the back half of the body. So I would love to give you a full list of exercises, but it's very tricky through a podcast. Um, but anything <laughs> Can't where you're, see so well. No. <laughs> but anything where we're working through the back of our body and lengthening through the front of our body because breastfeeding we tend to be quite hunched over, mm. although we shouldn't be. Um, 
but everything tends to be quite forward when we have a newborn and we're breastfeeding. So strengthening everything at the back to try and hold us back into that nice position can be yeah. quite helpful. Um, but, I mean, if women are experiencing pain with breastfeeding, it might be worth looking into their positioning for breastfeeding. Yeah. So making sure they have a nice supportive chair with their feet elevated and supported and making sure we're not lifting bub up to us or we're not going down to bub. We've got support under us. So we're just resting in a comfortable position or laying down on your back or on your side if that's comfortable can be quite good also yeah so you, um, when you actually put bub to the breast you, you're not holding them with your arms because then that's tensing your muscles yes. so you do want to bring them to you but then you don't want to hold them there you need to prop them there exactly yeah. so you know some women have their breastfeeding pillows or just using normal everyday pillows to prop underneath your arm and underneath baby's head mm. so that you're nice and supported in that position and you're not having to exert yourself more baby's already sucking the life out of you when you're breastfeeding <laughs> and you're already tired and sleep deprived so let's try and make things as easy as we possibly can yeah i found that side feeding was really beneficial for reducing aches and pains at that time and yes. and especially um like you know when they're dealing with tears and c-sections so for both of them because i had one of each yes um that that side lying was just so beneficial side lying is great i mean if we're thinking of nighttime feeding as well if you've got bub in you know either you're co-sleeping or you've got baby next to the bed and you're laying on your side you can just pull baby over breastfeed on your side baby goes back into the cot and you can go straight back to sleep rather than getting up walking around the house waking yourself up further but then also like you were saying in terms of scar healing and recovery of your pelvic floor and your abdominal scars it's just so much nicer so mm. if every woman could learn how to breastfeed on their side then that would be amazing yes. it's very good to just be able to relax while you're doing it exactly, exactly. <laughs> more enjoyable yes um, now, another one for you, managing colds during pregnancy and breastfeeding without the pharmacy drugs. Mm. Very relevant now that we're in winter. Yeah. Oh, it's so hard, isn't it? Because there's not much that's actually deemed to be safe. Mm -hmm. And as far as natural remedies goes, like we, well, there's so many things that if you're not pregnant, you can do for a cold and a flu. And I love mixing up blends like that to help, you know, train the mucus and kill the bugs. But when you're pregnant, you're a lot more limited. So probably my favorite is the classic that pretty much everyone would know is Echinacea. And that's been shown to be safe. And that one can be really helpful for supporting um, your immune system and just dealing with that in, in that acute stage. But if you are feeling like you're particularly worried, you could maybe take a very, very small dose like if you've been exposed to people that are sick as well and that will reduce the likelihood. Things like vitamin C and zinc are also really helpful too because those are immune supportive and, and zinc is one of the best studied ones for actually getting rid of the colds more quickly. I also suggest that if you're taking an iron and you have a cold, stop taking the iron because not many people know that iron can actually feed your cold and make that worse. And so those little bugs can steal all that iron, use it for themselves, and then they become super strong. Okay. One of the things that's so important for your immune health is the balance of your gut bacteria. Mm -hmm. Because if you don't have the right balance of bacteria in your gut, then your immune system isn't going to be as strong. Many people don't know that actually the bacteria within your gut is responsible for fighting off your infections a lot of the time. That's your, like one of your, your main areas there of your immune system. 
So taking a probiotic that's more specific for immune health can be helpful and you can do that more as a preventative measure if you are in the depths of winter or you generally do have a low immune system or something along those lines as well. But eating well, making sure you're getting enough protein, all of those things can be really beneficial. And then you can um, also do things like saline rinses for your, for your stuffy nose and blocked up sinuses. And that can be really helpful just to sort of clear things through so it's less likely to stick around. But probably echinacea is my favorite. But you just want to make sure that you're getting a good quality. If you're ever using herbal medicine when you're pregnant, it's really important to make sure that you're, you're getting good quality because unfortunately out there in the world of herbal medicine they can get adulterated with herbs they call people that maybe i don't know what they're doing pick the wrong plant and call it a different name and then that's actually that's usually when things go wrong with herbal medicine it's because of adulteration so a herbalist can help you with that or a naturopath perfect um and one of our other questions how soon to start pelvic floor exercises postnatally celebs are saying that they're doing them in hospital um so it is a little bit different for everyone so women who've had a cesarean if they aren't having any um, catheters in they could basically start day one day two if they feel comfortable and if they're doing their pelvic floor exercises correctly a lot of women like to brace through their abdominal wall when they do their pelvic floor exercises so ideally knowing that you're doing your pelvic floor exercises to begin with is a good starting point um, but then after a cesarean you can start them straight away if you have had a large tear, you're likely to be very swollen, very sore, a little bit bruised perhaps, and possibly have a catheter for one or two days. Um, so making sure that we're not doing it at that point because if we're squeezing around a catheter or we're squeezing around very painful sutures, then that's not going to be very nice. So waiting for sutures to heal, catheter to be removed. If none of those things are there and everything's feeling quite comfortable, then women can begin them straight away. And I don't like to give women specific programs to stick to in the postnatal period. Some women might not be able to squeeze their pelvic floor straight away. So don't feel upset if that's happening. That's just life. Um, you're very lucky if you actually can squeeze your pelvic floor in the first one or two weeks after having a baby because everything's been quite stretched. Um, but a good rule of thumb that I often tell women when they are going in and preparing for labour and birth is squeeze your pelvic floor for as long as your baby is old. So when baby's one week old, just try and aim for one second. When baby's four weeks old, try and aim for four seconds. I love that tip. Yeah, so then that's one less thing you have to think about. Just know how old your baby is <laughs> and then you know how long you can squeeze for so that then if you're going back for your six-week postnatal checkup, ideally with a physio as well as your obstetrician or GP, by that stage you're hopefully already up to about a six-second hold and that just makes it a little bit easier to continue the rehab. Okay, brilliant. I guess it's just so important for women just to know to take it easy yes. as well and just to give themselves a bit of a break. Yes. And you see celebrities doing these things. It's like that's not real life and no. you can never really trust that, can you? No, women don't have chefs at home and they don't have their own, you know, personal trainers giving them exercises. So give yourself at least the first six weeks of rest, recovery, bonding time with baby is probably the biggest thing. Work out your breastfeeding if that's what you're doing. Mm. Work out how to sleep and when to sleep and 
you know, if baby's getting a rest, don't feel like you need to use that time to exercise. Use that time to get some sleep yourself. Oh, my gosh. That's probably the biggest thing. I have women going, you know, I'll fit it in when baby's asleep. No, no, sleep. I would rather you rest than worry about exercise. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. And all the hormonal changes that are occurring at that time anyway will mean that your exercise isn't going to be as effective. Yeah as if you were actually ovulating. So it's probably just much, much better for you to have that sleep. And for women with, um, like if you're concerned about weight loss, for women, having adequate sleep is actually better for weight loss than it is to exercise. Absolutely. And better for your moods. It's just better for your general postnatal recovery. So Mm. get the sleep in as much as you can. For sure. Oh, my gosh. So just, yeah. Give yourselves a break. Look after yourself. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think we're going to have to do a whole postnatal podcast as well. I know. Because there's so much information that we haven't yet discussed. (laughs) Did we have any other questions? No, I think that is it so far. But if anyone has any other questions, they can definitely send them through and we are happy to add it into a postnatal podcast or any other podcasts. Yeah. Or answer them online. Yeah, so if you do have any questions or topics that you want us to talk about, let us know for sure. Well, I think that has pretty much wrapped up pregnancy and physiotherapy and a little bits of other pieces here and then too. (laughs) Very good. Yay. Oh, thank you again. And thanks everyone for listening. So thank you. And if you would, if you have enjoyed today, please leave us a review. Please share if you know anyone that would benefit from listening to this as well. And we'll catch you next time. Bye everyone. Bye.